Welcome back to the Global Greek Influence, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the dynamic world of global Greeks in the realms of technology, cutting-edge scientific and engineering innovation, entrepreneurship and business, also special topics on politics and history. I'm your hostess, Panayoto Pimenidou, and I'm thrilled to have you join us once again. If you want to stay updated and never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe, like and review the Global Greek Influence podcast on your favorite podcasting platform such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts and more. Your support means the world to me. For even more engagement, be sure to follow our podcast's Twitter account, Facebook page and LinkedIn page. It is the best way to stay up to date with the latest episodes, connect with me directly, and even suggest topics you would love to explore. But wait, there is more. For just two euros and 99 cents a month, you can unlock a world of exclusive content. By becoming a premium subscriber, you will gain access to exclusive video episodes available only on Spotify, get sneak peeks of upcoming interviews, and enjoy special episodes that dive deep into fascinating topics. So get ready to immerse yourself in the captivating stories and influential figures that have shaped the global Greek influence and impact the world today. Join us on this exciting journey of discovery and celebration. Thank you for being part of the Global Greek Influence community. Today I'm with Dr. Kostadine Stratakis, Chief Scientific Officer at Alpen in Athens, Greece and Director of the Human Genetics and Precision Medicine at the Foundation for Research and Technology, Hellas Forth in Crete. Dr. Stratakis spoke to the Global Greek Influence podcast episodes Advancing Future Precision Medicine and Precision Medicine in Cancer Treatment and Circular Health. In this episode, we delve into endocrinology and the role of predictive medicine. Join us as we explore the latest advancements in the field from genetic markers and emerging technologies to diagnostic tools that hold potential in predicting the course of the disease and identifying individuals at higher risk. We will also discuss the future directions and research priorities in combining endocrinology, predictive medicine and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Additionally, we will explore the role of vitamin D receptor, VDR, in absorbing vitamin D and its implications for overall health. Furthermore, we will shed light on the intriguing phenomenon of patients exhibiting hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism with normal TSH and T4 levels. As we journey deeper, we will explore the challenges of identifying and confronting psychiatric, endocrine, metabolic and autoimmune diseases, as well as vulnerability to them during childhood and adulthood. We will examine how dysregulation of the stress system can lead to disturbances in growth and development. Moreover, we will uncover the intricate relationships between human molecular genetics and familiar and sporadic pituitary tumors. Finally, we will delve into the question of diagnostic multiple endocrine neoplasias in patients before the full integration of predictive medicine. Before moving on to our discussion, allow me to add that Dr. Stratakis is a world-recognized leader in using genetic linkage and other genome-wide tools to identify small molecules responsible for genetic defects causing several human diseases and use them as targets by precision medicine. Constantine maintains visiting or adjunct professorships internationally, such as the Mayo Clinic and the European University of Cyprus. Welcome to the show, Dr. Strataki. Thank you for having me here. As we are going to start our discussion, allow me also to make an introduction to what endocrine of our activities. 
Of course, I'm not an expert. It's just information I have gathered. Endocrine overactivity refers to the extensive production or release of hormones by the endocrine glands in the body. The endocrine system is responsible for producing and regulating hormones, which are chemical messengers that control various bodily functions. When there is an overactivity of the endocrine glands, it means that they are producing and releasing hormones in excess, leading to imbalances in the body. Endocrine overactivity can occur due to various reasons, including tumors or growths on the endocrine glands, genetic disorders, autoimmune conditions, or certain medication. The specific symptoms and effects of endocrine overactivity depend on the gland involved and the hormones being overproduced. Hypothyroidism refers to an underactive thyroid gland, which results in insufficient production of thyroid hormones. This can lead to a slowdown in bodily functions and metabolism. Common symptoms of hypothyroidism include fatigue, weight gain, cold intolerance, and depression. Hyperthyroidism, on the other hand, is characterized by an overactive thyroid gland, leading to excessive production of thyroid hormones. This can cause an increase in metabolic rate and various symptoms, such as weight loss, rapid heartbeat, and heat intolerance. One wonders if any advancements have remained in understanding the underlying mechanisms of an autoimmune form of thyroiditis such as Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and if we see an update or an impact to current treatment approaches. With that being said, are there any specific genetic markers or biomarkers, emerging technologies or diagnostic tools that have shown potential in predicting the course of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, a form of hypothyroidism, and identifying individuals at higher risk of developing the disease to intervene earlier? So thank you for the question. So Hashimoto's thyroiditis is, of course, one of the most common autoimmune diseases. It is by far uh, the most common autoimmune disease of the thyroid gland. And as you point out, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, autoimmune thyroiditis leads to uh, destruction of the gland and hypothyroidism, in other words, a hypoactive thyroid gland. There is clearly a genetic component in Hashimoto's thyroiditis. In other words, the, the, the people that develop Hashimoto's thyroiditis have a predisposition have a the genetic background to respond to this autoimmune destruction. In other words, it doesn't happen to everybody. Even, even to people that have other autoimmune diseases, if they don't have the uh, right genetic background, the, the same trigger will not necessarily lead to autoimmune thyroid disease. And so what I'm trying to say is that although it is so common and although it can happen without any family history of um, thyroiditis, there's clearly a genetic component to the disease. What is that genetic component? Uh, most of the time it has to do with um, a system of genes, antigens we call them, called known as the HLA system. Uh, and so uh, most of us have certain HLA haplotypes or HLA markers in our body. Uh, all of us have HLA markers in our body, but the people that have susceptibility, uh, genetic predisposition to Hashimoto's thyroiditis, have specifically uh, very specific HLA subtypes. They have specific HLA antigens 
that are uh, there. So when there is a trigger for the autoimmune destruction, uh, these are the antigens that uh, work um, towards the, uh, uh, the manifestation of the disease of Hashimoto's So there's a genetic component. There's other genes that have been linked to the um, uh, uh, presentation of um, thyroiditis, to the manifestation of thyroiditis. These are individual mutations in genes that are less well-known uh, than the HLA. And finally, I want to point out to the link of um, autoimmune destruction of the thyroid and any form of thyroiditis with chromosomal disorders. And most of us know Down syndrome. I don't know if all of us know that Down syndrome is uh, a syndrome, a genetic syndrome associated with three chromosomes, 21, so it's also known as trisomy 21. And this is a condition where thyroid disease, Hashimoto's thyroiditis in particular, is very common. The same is true for another chromosomal disorder, Turner syndrome, uh, which is a disease where there is uh, one of the uh, uh, X chromosomes, excuse me, say. Uh, so it is amazing to me that chromosomal disorders, regardless of the HLA subtypes, uh, can predispose to Hashimoto's thyroiditis, sh showing again that there is a clearly genetic component to this disease, uh, and it is not all about a system like the HLA system, which is so important for the immune system. There's other genetic factors, including the chromosome count and, and specific genes that predispose to uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So I'll stop here and see if you have additional questions with regard to the genetics of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Thank you for all this uh, useful information in regard to the genetic biomarkers of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It is uh, not common to listen about them or to read about them, at least from the point of view of uh, a general audience, not uh, in your field of expertise. Both hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism involve an imbalance in thyroid hormone levels which are regulated by the endocrine system. Therefore, they can be considered forms of endocrine overactivity, as mentioned earlier. It is important to note that these conditions can have significant effects on overall health and should be properly diagnosed and managed by healthcare professionals, which allow me to add at this point that didn't happen in my case. What are the future directions and research priorities in the field of combining endocrinology, predictive medicine, and Hashimoto's stereoditis? Well, um, thank you again for the question. The, um, I think, like, like in most endocrine disorders, people don't realize that when you check a hormone level, the, whether the hormone level is within the reference range of the normal population or not is, of course, important, but it's not the most important factor in determining whether a particular gland or a particular system works right. And the reason that being in the, within the reference range is not enough, is that for every hormonal system, there is a hormone, and there is another hormone, and there is a receptor, and there is another receptor. And then these hormones and the receptors 
are regulated by multiple glands in a system that we typically call negative or positive feedback system. So there is a, a circular system that regulates every hormonal level. And so when you look at a single hormone, that single hormone to be in the middle of the reference range, you know, it's good to be in the middle of the reference range for sure. Don't take me wrong, but it's not enough. What you have to have is the hormone that regulates this hormone also being in the middle of the reference range. And what you also have to have is the receptors that respond to these hormones to um, do their work properly. And also, the time of the day that you measure these hormones plays a factor. And whether you take other substances or medications and what other environmental factors regulate your hormonal levels also play a factor. So when you look at, for example, the thyroid hormone level, being in the reference range is not enough. A doctor needs to look at whether the other hormone that regulates the thyroid hormone level is also at the expected range, and whether all these measurements have been taken at the right time of the day, and where they stand with regards to the overall health, and any medications or substances or exposures uh, you're, uh, you, you have. And so that's, I think, the reason why uh, a lot of diseases, especially endocrine diseases, don't get diagnosed in time. Because usually it takes a lot of time to for a disease to develop. So, for example, when you have thyroid dysfunction, it probably is the end result of many, many years of dysregulation. And so by the time you are hypothyroid, you know, you've suffered essentially for years of this dysregulation, because nobody thought of what I just told you, that you know somebody should have looked at not just the thyroid hormone level, but also what regulates the thyroid hormone level, and so on, all the things that I, that I mentioned. So that's why I think um, predictive medicine is useful, because when one practices predictive medicine, and you look at the individual person, you don't necessarily look just at the reference ranges. You look at the health of the individual, you look at all the system, and you judge then whether the levels of the hormonal levels that you're looking at are good enough, are they abnormal, or are they on their way to being abnormal? One of my follow-up questions was going to be about what you just mentioned about the hormonal levels in regard to hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism, like the TSH and T4 levels. As you've already said, in many cases, patients show that they have a normal TSH and T4, even though they might suffer from hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism. Could we also have a case where the thyroid glands has hypothyroidism and on other parts of the thyroid gland there is 
hyperthyroidism. So this hypo and hyperthyroidism in different parts of the thyroid gland could balance out and show normal TSH and T4 levels. Well, I mean, what counts at the end, of course, and in terms of the whole body is what the actual thyroid hormone level is. Um, And so if the thyroid hormone level and the TSH are, in fact, at the normal range, um, it it doesn't matter whether they're coming from hyperactive parts or hyperactive parts. What counts is at the end, what the end result is, the the, the final hormonal levels. However, I, I do want to say that what you just mentioned is entirely possible. I mean, it's it, within the context of thyroiditis, inflammation of the thyroid gland is, is not uncommon, in fact, to have areas of the gland that are hyperactive and areas of the gland that are hyperactive. That's well known. Um, and, and you can test that with a thyroid scan. You can actually see areas of the gland that are hyperactive and areas of the gland that are hypoactive. And um, when when you look at the gland, uh, even anatomically, so when you look at the gland as an organ, you can see these areas that are hyperactive and hyperactive. So it's not uncommon when you have autoimmune thyroiditis to have both grapes, which is the hyperactivity, and Hashimoto's, which is the hypoactivity. And and the other thing is also possible, which I don't know if many of our, uh, the people that are listening to us, many of our listeners know that, that it is not unusual for thyroiditis to present with a phase of hyperactivity and then a phase of hypoactivity and vice versa. You can go through a time of hyperactivity and then short times, usually short times, of hyperactivity. So this, this happens because as the, you know, we have to understand how, what thyroiditis is. Thyroiditis is the attack of the thyroid gland by antibodies that our body has made against the gland. And so as these attacks happen, when a cell dies, if there's massive cell death, then there's release of thyroid hormone into the system. So that causes hyperthyroidism. Now, when these cells die, it takes time for new cells to to form again. So then you go through a phase of hypothyroidism. If these new cells never form and the gland is destroyed, then you have permanent hypothyroidism. So um, alternating between hyper and hypo is not unusual. Typically, not always, but typically when that happens, the end result is permanent hypothyroidism. Not always, but most of the time. And based on the literature, one can see that when has um, hypothyroidism, that they lack certain vitamins, such as vitamin D. And I was going to ask you, because I've uh, read that you uh, published a research article called the human vitamin D receptor gene BDR is localized to region 12C and dash Q12 by fluorescent in situ 
hybridization and radiation hybrid mapping, genetic and physical VDR map. So what is the role of the vitamin D receptor, VDR, in absorbing vitamin D? And could this be related to hypothyroidism, not causing hypothyroidism, but an effect for hypothyroidism? Uh, okay, so the, the, the paper that you're referring to is a paper where it basically mapped the gene for the vitamin D receptor. And it's a paper we did many years ago. Um, it is true that v- vitamin D receptors or VDR gene variants have been linked to Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It is not quite known what the functional link is. Uh, but th- there's no question that there's genetic variants of the vitamin D receptor that have been associated with um, hypothyroidism, with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. The VDR gene itself uh, doesn't seem to have a role in the absorption of the vitamin D. That, of course, happens through other mechanisms. But the VDR gene itself is very important for the function of vitamin D. And so uh, there are certain variants of the vitamin D receptor that have been associated with a less or more activity of the vitamin D. And so in another paper that you didn't mention, we showed that certain vitamin D receptor variants uh, have been associated with, for example, osteoporosis. And there was a, a pretty significant paper that we did with other investigators showing that certain VDR variants are associated with uh, decreased bone mineral density in women with depression. Uh, in general, depression, for example, is associated with osteoporosis with lower bone mineral density. And obviously, these women that carry these variants that make a weaker VDR response to vitamin D um, make the uh, the lower bone mineral density worse. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think my answer to your question is, has a lot of smaller... Um, here. I mean, it's, it's a very wide issue, and I don't want to our listeners to get confused. So my answer to your question is yes, there are genetic variants of the vitamin D receptor that have been associated with predisposition to thyroiditis. The exact mechanism is unclear. And finally, yes, there are, again, VDR variants that seem to affect VDR function and vitamin D activity. Typically, those are more important for conditions associated with uh, osteoporosis with lower bone mineral density. and. Um, uh, and, and there's plenty of publications uh, with regards to that. So I'll stop here. You referred to the lack of vitamin D and depression in many women, of course, uh, and the absorption of uh, calcium leading to osteoporosis. How can we identify and face psychiatric, endocrine, metabolic, and autoimmune diseases or vulnerability to them during childhood and adulthood as dysregulation of the stress system that leads to disturbances in growth and development and 
I thought of this question based on your publication on neuroendocrinology of stress implications for growth and development. Yeah, so the the neuroendocrinology of stress is all about uh, the uh, regulation of one very, very important hormone that I have worked on for many years, the um, cortisol, which is uh, the main stress hormone. Cortisol is produced by the adrenal gland. But its production is regulated by the brain, by the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. Um, so when we are exposed to chronic stress, there is no question that our cortisol levels are higher. People that are exposed to a variety of mental health disorders, including depression, Typically, again, not always, but typically have higher cortisol levels. And then there is the most common type of depression. Melancholic depression is almost always associated with higher cortisol levels. So when you have higher cortisol levels, uh, you um, you have a, a, a number of side effects of that. And, and, and one of them is lower bone mineral density. And the study I mentioned before was published in the England Journal of Medicine many years ago. And we showed that uh, women with depression had high cortisol levels. Those that had these certain vitamin D receptor variants had even lower bone mineral density because uh, of their higher cortisol levels. And so, yes, anybody who is stressed has higher cortisol levels, but People are affected by these higher cortisol levels in different ways in different systems, depending on their susceptibility. And in this case, the bone is more susceptible if you if you carry certain vitamin D receptor variants. But you know, you look at the effects of cortisol on, on many organs, whether it's the muscle, the bone, the brain, uh, the heart, and and in every system, your genetic susceptibilities kick in and. You know, if 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 you uh, have higher cortisol levels, and you have certain genetic background that makes your heart weaker, your heart will be affected by cortisol uh, more, and, and and so on. I mean, it, you know, it, it, I think it is easily understood by our listeners. You don't have to be a physician or a biologist to understand that. As long as you have a hormone cortisol that is higher when you're stressed. That hormone has many, many, many effects uh, in it, it, many different systems, and each system responds to cortisol depending on our genetic background. Um, okay, you know, so the question is, is stress bad for you? Well, you know, you can't live life without stress. So stress is important. Uh, stress is necessary. And, and, and people may think that I'm crazy by saying that, but the truth of the matter is life is all about stress. And so stress is important. You can't live life without stress. Now, stress becomes maladapted when stress becomes chronic. So when you respond to everything like a stress response, that's a problem. And when stress becomes a stress response for everything, that's a problem. But stress is necessary. There's no, you know, there's, there's no way you can go through life without stress. And our system is, has built in a response to stress because that's how we that's how we live. And so cortisol is necessary for life. You, if one 
stops cortisol production. Uh, that's not compatible with life. So cortisol is a is a is an essential hormone for life. But it becomes maladaptive. It becomes bad for you when it's continuously uh, secreted. When you are exposed to cortisol all the time, that's uh, something that our body cannot tolerate, and that's when you start seeing the effects of chronic stress. I'll finish this by giving a um, this response by giving a a very nice example for our listeners to understand what I just said. There's a time of the day that we should not be stressed. And our bodies know that. When is that? When I go to bed. We're supposed to go to bed by, by uh, sunset. That's how, that's how we're made. You know, we're animals, and when the sun sets, we're supposed to go to sleep. So we're supposed to be in deep sleep by between 10.30 and 11 o'clock at night in everybody's time zone. At that time, believe it or not, a normal person has zero, zero, I repeat that, zero, nil, cortisol level. Okay? So that shows you that cortisol, yes, is necessary for life, but when we are supposed to go to bed and sleep and relax and have our deep dreams, which is always the case in our first deep sleep of the day at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, at that time, cortisol levels are undetectable or should be undetectable. And then, you know, we sleep for seven, eight, nine hours, whatever, and you wake up refreshed in the morning at 7.30, 8 a.m. That is the time of the day that our bodies have the highest cortisol levels. That's the normal cortisol diurnal rhythm. So you can see that stress is necessary. Waking up is stressful. We all know that. We do it every day. And we are stressed every day, but it's good. Imagine if you stayed in bed all day. That would not be life. So what's life? Life is you wake up in the day and do your work. That's stressful, but it's good stress. It's necessary stress. And our bodies to make it happen, make sure that we have high cortisol levels in the morning. And then when we're supposed to relax and go to sleep, our bodies know it and make it certain that we have undetectable cortisol levels. You're stressed throughout, the cortisol levels remain high throughout the day and the night. And that's bad for you. And I'll finish here. We discussed the pituitary gland before. So my next question, as we move towards to the end of our discussion, is based on your research article, Clinical and Molecular Genetics of Acromegaly, MEN1, Carnicoblex, McCune, Albright Syndrome, Familial Acromegaly, and Genetic Defects in Sporadic Tumors. Um, allow me to say here that acromegaly means that people under certain conditions can have enlarged arms or legs or feet or hands. So why could human molecular genetics be responsible for familiar and sporadic pituitary tumors? Right, so good question. So we touched on the pituitary gland, of course, linking this to the previous uh, answer 
the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland are part of the brain and they regulate all the other endocrine glands, including uh, the thyroid that we were talking about earlier, and of course, cortisol protection that we uh, just touched on uh, in the previous uh, question. So in this particular article and many other articles that I've written, we studied the uh, formation of tumors in the pituitary gland. And um, the pituitary gland produces a number of hormones. And so some of the conditions you mentioned that are genetic predispose to the formation of pituitary tumors that produce any of the hormones that the pituitary gland makes, including cortisol, uh, growth hormone, uh, and, and others. So the pituitary gland is one of the uh, organs of the body that gets tumors quite frequently. But fortunately, most of these tumors are clinically insignificant. So in other words, they don't cause problems. Uh, infrequently, some of these tumors can grow and produce hormones, in which case they do cause clinical symptoms, such as the ones you mentioned, the chromatically and so on. And what I've studied all these years is genes, genetic predisposition to the formation of these tumors, which again, as I said, are fortunately quite infrequent. Uh, but there are whole families that are predisposed to the formation of pituitary tumors. And so those we've studied over the years and our work has led to um, a number of discoveries in terms of what the genes are. And uh, we hope also um, our work will lead to uh, medical therapies uh, for pituitary tumors. And I'll finish here by saying that uh, pituitary tumors are some of the uh, are among the first tumors in in human nosology medicine that were treated by medication. So there's a great pituitary tumors are a great example of what medical therapy can do to replace surgery. Um, we were just discussing earlier before the episode started about one type of pituitary tumors, prolactinomas, which is a great example back in the eighties. The first medical therapy for any tumor uh, was found to affect the uh, course of a, of a prolactinoma. And today, these same medications that were used back in the 80s uh, are treating pituitary tumors such as prolactinomas. And many of these patients never require surgery, which is a great success. You know, uh, I think something like this doesn't happen, for example, for colon cancer, right? Not yet. Every patient with colon cancer needs to have surgery. Almost every patient with colon cancer needs to have surgery. And yet, patients with prolactinomas that required surgery until the 80s, today, almost none of them gets uh, surgery. So it's a, it's a great example of what, you know, medicine with new medications can do to uh, help improve on the course and treatment of diseases. And so um, I'm very happy to have been part of this field of rapidly developing field of medicine and being associated with some of the greatest discoveries uh, in terms of genetics and, and what genetics can do to benefit patients. The term neoplasia encompasses a wide range of conditions and diseases, including various types of tumors and cancers. 
Neoplasia refers to the abnormal and uncontrolled growth of cells in the body that is not under normal physiological control. It is characterized by the formation of new tissue or masses that can be classified either benign or malignant. Benign neoplasms are non-cancerous and do not invade surrounding tissues, while malignant neoplasms, also known as cancers, have the potential to spread and cause harm to the body. One final question, Dr. Strataki, as we reach the end of our discussion today. How can a patient these days currently be diagnosed for multiple endocrine neoplasias before we have fully integrated predictive medicine? Thank you. Uh, well, uh, today we know several of these genes. And so if a person, a child, is born into a family with known history of multiple endocrine neoplasias, then that individual can be screened genetically. And that is, in fact, what happens in most of these cases. And that's how today there's no reason for a child that is born into a family with a known multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome to suffer uh, through undiagnosed diseases and, and the consequences of these uh, undiagnosed diseases because every child or teenager or young adult that is born into a family with a multiple endocrineoplasia should be screened genetically and be identified as a carrier and 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 get enrolled in the normal surveillance, uh, that regular surveillance that these patients should undergo so that their problems get identified early and they never suffer through the consequences of undiagnosed uh, diseases. Unfortunately, uh, that cannot be said for patients that are not born into a family with a known disease. And so often we have cases that what we call in genetics de novo, like, you know, a, a, a new case of a, of a new mutation or a new genetic defect. And in this case, um, the diagnosis will only come when there is a manifestation, there's a, there's a symptom, there's a clinical sign that can lead the patient to the doctor. Again, Fortunately, today, most doctors are familiar with these diseases. And so when they do see the early signs of disease, they can diagnose it early and, again, avoid um, serious uh, problems in the future. But, um, you know, there will be a day that every one of us will be screened genetically. And so even if you don't have any family history, uh, you will be identified with whatever predisposes you to whatever disease, not just a multiple endocrineoplasis and get enrolled in regular surveillance for for avoiding uh, problems with uh, with uh, with the disease in the future. I think that's the essence of individualized medicine, of preventive medicine, a medicine that protects you from developing disease, a medicine that doesn't focus only on treating disease, because by the time you treat disease, you obviously have disease, right? That's why you treat it. The goal is to avoid disease. And I think that's that's what medicine is all about. Uh, I'm not saying that, of course, doctors will not continue treating diseases. But for the first time really ever, with the advances in genetics and biomarkers and, and imaging techniques, we we do have, for the first time ever, again, I repeat, the opportunity to detect 
problems before they appear clinically. And that's the essence of medicine. To give our people, our citizens, our friends, our families, uh, the opportunity to avoid disease so that they never need a doctor. The only doctor they need, any one of us needs, is the doctor that will test you for what you may develop in the future and give you the advice and everything else necessary to avoid disease in the future. So prevention and avoidance are the name of the game, not treatment, obviously treatment when disease occurs, of course, but again, the emphasis should be given in prevention. And that brings us to the end of another incredible episode. Before we go, I want to take a moment to express my deepest gratitude to our exceptional guest, Dr. Stratakis. This episode would not have been the same without your contributions and support. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be back. To our esteemed guest, Dr. Stratakis, thank you for your presence. Again, your expertise and passion truly elevated the conversation and provided our audience with a unique perspective. And to our incredible audience, thank you for joining us on this journey. Your unwavering support and engagement mean the world to me. Your comments, messages and shares fuel our motivation to continue delivering thought-provoking content. As we wrap up this episode, we want to assure you that we will continue to bring you captivating, informative and entertaining content. We are committed to delivering episodes that resonate with you, challenge your thinking and leave you wanting more. Thank you all for staying until the end. Subscribe, follow and leave a review to show your support and spread the podcast message far and wide. Thank you for being part of the Global Creek Influence Podcast family. Stay tuned and keep exploring the world of podcasts with the Global Creek Influence.